if you think about how marriages work. Yes. They. I'm really more of an expert on how they don't don't work. work. Yeah. <laughs> you and me both. It's kind of my thing. And welcome to Gen Extemporaneous. This is a podcast where I come up with an idea, I do some research, I grab a bottle of wine, I bring everything to Mark, and he pontificates. Today, we are returning to one of our favorite kinds of episodes, Life Lessons in Gen X Movies. While our topic film is not necessarily Gen X, it certainly had a huge impact on readers from that generation and has continued to inspire millennials and Gen Zs to embrace the source material. It was a much-anticipated fan favorite, although critical reception was mixed, but 1994's Interview with the Vampire, starring Tom Cruise as Lestat and Brad Pitt as Louis, is a campy classic that some people love and others love to hate. We thank you for coming to listen to us each week, and if you do like us, please share us with a friend. Hi, Mark Snedeker. Hello, Christina LaRusso. Now, is your philosophy on the introduction uh, just a take on the game Two Truths and a Lie? Huh? We are a podcast. True. <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> but you know the lie. I know the lie, well, because I'm not drinking. Well, but that doesn't mean I can. Well, you can and you are. So yeah, I'm not holding you back. I'm just not bringing wine. you wine. I gave you a whole bottle of wine the other night. <laughs> That's my allowance for the I week? I did. Well, I mean... <laughs> So what are we doing tonight, Christina? Uh, We are talking about life lessons in Gen X movies. And while this is not traditionally, I don't think, thought of as a Gen X movie. 1994. 1994, it certainly was appealing to Gen Xers in their 20s at the time. Yeah. Are we going to tell the audience the uh, movie at any point? Are we going to just make them guess? I said it in the introduction. We'll be here. Let's go. Interview with the Vampire. Now, is that a movie about vampires? <laughs> it is indeed. I'm not that familiar with it. Yeah, I mean, we have a passing familiarity with the subject material. We do. I'm kind of out of sorts talking about vampires and not having Joanne with yeah, us. Yeah, our junior league vampire hunter. <laughs> <laughs> the one who wants to be a vampire. Yeah, more than anything in the world. All right, so here's the shameless plug for our other podcast. It is called Vampire Insider. We are talking right now about the Mayfair Witches. We consider it a podcast that is the unofficial podcast talking about the immortal universe that AMC is developing. So please come and listen to us on all of your favorite podcast platforms. It's a pretty good little podcast. As a matter of fact, we are the number two interview with a vampire podcast of all time uh, well no on apple charts i think oh whatever that's all of all time we're only behind the the official, the official podcast. podcast and they just and get they get because they, they get, get the stars you know, they get sam reed to come on their podcast <laughs> I mean, believe me we had sam, sam reed, reed on our podcast we'd be crushing those guys <laughs> if we had sam reed on our podcast joanne would be catatonic <laughs> all right so let's do a hot take i'm going to ask you this question because mm-hmm. This movie is not our typical kind of movie that we do life lessons. Right. It's not John Hughes for one It's not, not John Hughes. And it's... Can you imagine if John Hughes made this movie? <laughs> <laughs> no. Although... I mean, it would look probably look a lot like... Um, it would take place in Shermer, Illinois. Oh, it definitely would, yeah. <laughs> There'd be like vampires in the oak trees along the <laughs> avenue. <laughs> but it would probably look a lot like um, The Lost Boys. Like, that's a very Gen X vampire movie i think <laughs> but um i mean this well, we is, could have done life this lessons is a gen in- x movie i mean yes it stars boomers but just barely 
Well, right. But I mean, a lot of Gen X movies starred boomers. Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, They're older Gen X people weren't always more. ready for the role. Right. When, you know, exactly. Like 17. Exactly. Okay. So here is the question for you. David Hot, hot, hot take. No, no. Oh. We'll get there, though. Yeah. Do movies need to be serious to have valuable life, life lessons? Absolutely not. No. Why would they be? First of all, comedies are legitimate art forms and have always been considered such i think mm -hmm. people get this idea that if it's a comedy it's frivolous and and honestly you can blame the 80s for that a bit right uh, the yeah, kind of porkies. The porkies exactly you know exactly what i'm talking about meatballs um where they're just what they call screwball comedies right and with really very little nutritional value whatsoever mm -hmm. but comedies can often be the most poignant social commentary i yeah. mean it's a great way to skewer the status quo mm -hmm. the power structure the patriarchy whatever you want to make fun of that day right so in fact i think comedies are often better mm -hmm. at social commentary and life lessons than dramas which tend to be a little bit heavy-handed and on the nose absolutely comedies can have life lessons well and by serious though i mean this isn't a comedy but it isn't, no, it, uh, it, it, but it's a fantastical film. Right. So that's another question. Can you find life lesson in gothic horror or uh, fantasy films? Mm -hmm. And absolutely you can. In fact, it's just kind of stuffed shirt, stick up your ass kind of critics who would say otherwise. Good. I'm glad that you think so, because today we are going to dig into this. We posed this question to our f followers on our vampire insider twitter and so we have some fun and funny life lessons that followers there pointed Suggested, out to us yes. yep and we also have some of our own let's talk a little bit about interview with the the vampire the film okay just to give it a little bit of background the film yes the book was published in 1976 by ann yes. rice mm-hmm it was a standalone book until 1985. Until she thought, you know, maybe I can make some more money off of these <laughs> characters. And all of a sudden it's a sequel. She then, wasn't like George Lucas, like, okay, this is the first film. It's episode four. Get it? So, no, she was like, oh, here's an interview with the vampire. Right. And now she's like, mm, maybe more. Right away, though, when she first published it, there was talk about, you know, it turning it into a film. And that would make yeah. sense because there were a lot of those 70s vampire movies that were not. Some of them were art film kind of vampire movies. Some of yes. them were, you know, funny, campy, like uh, right. Love at First Bite, Disco Vampire. Yeah. Some of them were just embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> Some of them were very sexual. Yeah. <laughs> because, of course, vampires. Vampiros lesbos. lesbos. <laughs> vampires are very sexy. Well, they uh, they are now considered sexy, but they didn't used to be. Well, in the 70s, they were getting pretty sexy. Sexy-ish, yes. Yeah. Well, Vampiros Lesbos was fully sexy. Yeah, well, sexual. I would argue whether it was sexy or not. It was, I think that seven people a little in the odd. 70s found that sexy. Well, maybe. I do. I, think I questioned that they, them and their whole I, existence. They found Deep Throat sexy, too. Yeah. yeah. All right. So, uh, but they started immediately talking about, okay, yeah. well, who's going who's gonna to play these characters? Right. And, of course, one of the, the big standout characters in Interview with the Vampire, he is cast as the villain. Later, after 1985, and he gets on this incredible redemption arc. Yeah. But is Lestat de Liancourt. Right. And so he he's cast as the villain in an in interview with the vampire. 
And the protagonist then, of course, is Louis de Pont-du-Lac. We. Oui. The big question was who who should play Lestat. Right. This is this is a big 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 right. deal. Right. And maybe Dustin Hoffman wasn't a good choice. He, he wouldn't have been. But let, let's talk about some of the people that they that names that were bandied about. So during the seventies, and this is Anne Rice's choice, Rutger Hauer. I think it, that would have been he would have been a very butch Lestat. You know what I mean? Because he is a square jawed, steely eyed kind of guy. And if you if you haven't seen Rutger Hauer in movies, he is excellent and he is very menacing, right? He was menacing in uh, Blade, Blade Runner. Runner. That's where she saw him and, and she said, that's my that's He was my even menacing in Lady Hawk, <laughs> <laughs> which is a great movie, by the way, if you haven't seen it. Uh, with Michelle Pfeiffer, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, okay, so Rutger Hauer was her choice. But my God, they thought of John Travolta too in the 1970s. Well, that is embarrassing but here is where that comes from right you look they look around and they go who's a hot property right who's gonna, who's sell, gonna put who's asses gonna, in the seats yeah. and can john you, travolta at the just, time can you just imagine though i mean he'd be like he let's start he's like what where <laughs> <laughs> louis why are you always giving me a hard time <laughs> but i mean it's true like john travolta as lestat that just floors me but in 1970s if they he had doesn't done have it then, that. He doesn't have the range. He, he wouldn't have. Stuff. No, definitely not. But it. But big wow, right? Yeah, like John Travolta, yeah. Rucker Howard. I can say yes. yes. John Travolta, definitely not. Less, okay, in the nineteen so. eighties, when they were considering making this film, and now by the mid eighties, nineteen eighty five is when the Vampire Lestat yeah. comes out to great success. Right? Mm-hmm. These are these are very popular books. Three names. Okay. Daniel Day Lewis. Yeah. Mm, again, I think you need a certain camp element. I think Daniel Day Lewis. He could. Done I mean, it. look, he could play a. He look, could play he a pencil. He played Bill the Butcher. Yeah, he could do it. That was extremely camp. Yeah. So I mean, okay. I, I mean, a great actor. One of the great actors of his day could have pulled it off. Not my first choice, probably, but because he doesn't have the sexiness, I don't think. Oh, oh you, you, you oh. beg to differ? <laughs> yes, I mean, I'm sweating just thinking okay, about the last of the Mohicans. Down. My God, Hawkeye. All right. Now, here's the problem, though. Yeah. I cannot picture him blonde. Yeah. He, he could, is definitely yeah. like that dark. Now, I do think, and I've criticized uh, people on our other podcast for you know, making the hair color of the character that but important. But Lestat is so iconically blonde. It doesn't matter. No. It does, it, seriously, it does not matter, even it, a little it bit. It matters. No. Yeah. It matters. It changes nothing about his character. Well, oh, I he know. Has blonde hair. Well, okay, it, it matters to me. I mean, and I think it would matter to a great many people, Mark. Oh, I'm sure. They, they Everything matters to a certain segment of the population. All right. So then Richard Gere. Um, 1980s Richard Gere. Remember, 89 think, yeah. is when he does no, his comeback with yeah. Pretty Woman. Yeah. So mid to late 80s Richard Gere. Uh, uh, he, Maybe. I don't know. No, it's just that, first of all, look, to, he, he looked older. He he had yeah. the gray hair and everything. Of course, right. they would have put a blonde wig on him. But he, I don't think he has. I think you have to have kind of a bit of an, almost an elfin quality. You know, you have to have that delicate... Well-bred kind of. Sam Reed has a square-ass jaw. And yeah, but he, he's, he's also like the iconic Lestat. Yeah, but he's also got you know gigantic cheekbones and yeah. you know long well, flowing hair, angular, and, angular, right? Yeah, and that's yeah. why I think Daniel Day Lewis could have physically with yeah. his face, just not his hair. Okay, right. uh, and then here's one that I just Mel Gibson. No, no, no. hard pass, hard pass, Mel. Nope. No. Um, 
90s possibilities. These are the people that were considered in the 90s. This is un, this is astonishing to me, some of these. <laughs> Christopher Walken. Louis. <laughs> I'm going to bite your neck and turn you into a vampire. And I'm going to need more cowbell. No, that's, that is silly. How could they? What yeah, look, they Christopher thinking? Walken plays Christopher Walken. Yeah, but he's, right? and, it, and he's so great to he's watch. He's a great but you, actor, you couldn't, but he can't. No, mm-mm, no, mm-mm. Uh, Jeremy Irons. Yes, except he was probably a little old mm-hmm. then. I mean, I but I do feel like Jeremy Irons has been fifty since he was twenty. I know, right? right? A lot of those actors, <laughs> yeah. feel like they like been... just look grizzled when he was in his yeah. teens. Yeah, you know. But look, he's a he could. I mean, obviously, we know he can play a villain. Yeah, he did because he was uh, Klaus von Bülow and Scar. Yeah. Oh, yes, he was Scar. <laughs> so yes. he could definitely. I think he could have pulled it out. I just think he was just. A, he looked a little old for the part then. Mm-hmm. Tom Hanks. Nope. No way. How look, could they have I like thought to put Tom, Tom Hanks, Hanks more? I like Tom Hanks more than you do. I think. Oh no, I love Tom Hanks. Yeah, he's a gigantic talent, but he's not menacing. Uh uh-uh. uh You know, and Except- he except. In Polar Express. Well, but that was just, that was the Uncanny Valley. Right <laughs> yeah, those are really where he terrifying. Just, where he just looked a l- almost human, but not quite. He yeah. just threw you off the yeah. whole movie. Yeah. Well, now here's the other 90s possibility was John Malkovich. Good. And I think he could have done it. He could have pulled I mean, first of all. It. He was Valmont. Yeah, he's he, a great. He looks good in that costume. Yeah, he's a great, great actor. Mm-hmm. How old was he then? He would have been in his, I think, forties. So he yeah. would have been a little bit old, but you know, I think, wig, that, I, whatever, yeah. You know. I mean, I think they could I have. Mean, he could have. Done, he could have done it, but yeah, okay, I can live with that a bit. Yeah, I, I think that he would have been a good one, and my, so my two choices would have been Daniel Day Lewis or John Malkovich. Who you said Bowie? David Bowie. You want somebody who can play that camp, villainous, sexy look? Bowie, mm-hmm. right? First of all, he was already in a vampire movie. Mm-hmm. The hunger, the right? hunger. Mm-hmm. He was not the uh, alpha male in that one, particularly. Catherine Deneuve took that role. Mm-hmm. Imagine the vampire and Jared from Labyrinth, where he plays that kind of diabolical, yeah, kind of guy. Um, he, I think he could have been excellent. At yeah, that. yeah, you're not wrong. He could have good looking, mm-hmm. high cheekbones. Uh-huh. You know, regal patrician kind of look there yeah. uh could definitely play menacing yeah you know i think that could have been a good one yeah in the end that is not the direction that they took maybe they should have <laughs> oh you know who else they could have picked sting oh there's stinglehopper <laughs> it's like louis, louis I, I will, will kill, kill him. you <laughs> all i see is a human that i wish to eat <laughs> be, ow <laughs> Chop. <laughs> See, you know your sting. I do. Yeah. Uh, all that right. That would have been amazing. So they chose instead yeah. to do some pretty serious stunt casting. Yeah. You didn't like this choice at all. I did not. Uh, they chose Tom Cruise to yep. play Lestat. Yep. And they chose uh, Brad Pitt to play Louis. Now, Brad Pitt, you know. He did. I he, mean. He did okay. He did I think that job. Brad Pitt actually would have made a better Lestat than Tom Cruise did. Possibly. But um, at any rate, Anne Rice initially was irate at the casting of Tom Cruise and said to the LA Times, Cruise is no more my vampire Lestat than Edward G. Robinson is Rhett Butler. Yeah, that's a little harsh. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Now, I know you didn't like him in this movie. I did not. I will say that 
my expectation for him in that movie was pretty low because he's coming off of, you know, risky business and Top Gun and things like that. But he stretched for that role. He dove in and he went for it to his credit. And yeah. when we rewatched it, because we did an episode on Vampire Insider where we talked extensively about yeah. e- extensively about this film. He yeah. did try. I mean, he really did try. You, He yeah. stretched himself to, I think, to probably his limits in yeah. that film. And then later on, he went on as he as he got a little bit older and he played some other roles like in Magnolia and stuff where he's, he's a good actor. I yeah. mean, he's not a bad actor. Right. Just not for this film. And however, Anne Rice was magnanimous and did say, I think Tom did a wonderful job. She acknowledged this in an interview after the film came out. She said, I, too, was shocked in the beginning. I was very much against it. But Tom Cruise really did read the books, I think. And he got the essence of Lestat. He got Lestat's power and his charisma and his charm. And that and all his came brattiness. And, and that all came across in the movie. And she gave she felt that he gave a skillful performance. Well, I think she was probably being a little kind, but I will say that he did go for it. His performance was was camp. It was really camp. Yeah. And that's okay. Well, Lestat is a pretty over the top character. Yeah. Um Interview with the Vampire was directed by Neil Jordan, who had who came to it as uh, right after he did the crying game. Yeah. And I don't know if you remember the oh, crying I game in the nineties, that was yeah. a big deal. It was a big deal. And it deal. was a great film. Yeah. He had a lot of renown and he brought a beautiful eye to the film. Yeah. I think that it's a gorgeous to look at movie. The costuming is absolutely stunning. Sure. The way that it's shot, beautiful with cinematography, all the rest. I love looking at that movie. It's a beautiful movie to look at. Um, it made $224 million worldwide. So it was a very big, big hit. commercial success. It has gone on to impress people of many generations. As a matter of fact, what we are finding in our interaction with people in the vampire fandom, that the film is often the gateway yeah. for them to, to go and read the books. Read the books. Watch the TV show. And now watch watch the television show. <laughs> the one thing that people kind of look at the film in 94 and say, well, it didn't really get into the sexuality as explicitly as it probably ought right. to have. I think we're a little remiss in not mentioning, well, we talked about Brad Pitt, but probably one of the greatest acting jobs by a child actor oh, of all time. Claudia is, uh, Kirsten yeah. Dunst is outstanding as Claudia. What was she, like 11 mm-hmm. at that think, time? Yeah, Something 10 like or that. 11. Maybe, what's her name from Paper Moon? Tatum O'Neill. From Paper Moon, and then maybe Jodie Foster from... Taxi driver. Uh, taxi driver. Maybe those are better. I don't know. But it's one of the great virtuoso acting jobs by a child in a film ever. hundred uh, percent. And the thing about Claudia, for those of you who haven't read the books or What's seen the film, you? I mean, I it, that it's hard to imagine, but Claudia is a child vampire. Yeah. The, they create a, a child vampire. In the book, she's four or f- five years old. Yeah. And in the film, she's like 10. Yep. Uh, and the vampire body stays tiny. So she's a baby vampire. Yeah, you're frozen in time biologically. But her but brain, aging. she's aging. She's getting yeah. older and smarter. And so she is literally imprisoned by her baby body. Yeah. She can't get, she can't be on her own. She can't ever right. just become 
an independent person. She's right. always got to rely because even though she's a vampire and mortals can take her out, there are other vampires yeah. who will definitely have their way with her. Yeah. And uh, that was that was driven home in a very difficult episode to watch for with in the TV series, Correct. but um, also for Claudia in the book and in the the movie, she has a terrible end. Yes. Let's talk about what we think are some of the life lessons. My first life lesson is it's the Highlander lesson. Okay. Who wants to live forever? Mm. It living forever is difficult, problematic, and maybe impossible to stay sane. You know, put aside the idea that all of your family and friends are going to die around you. They definitely are. You're likely to be unable to connect with the time. Let's say you grew up in the 19th century. That's forever your time. Like you and I, we grew up in the 80s. We have an affinity for the 80s. If we then suddenly put ourselves in the 2080, 2280s, right? We're not going to be able to connect to that time. You may be able to learn some stuff and learn some of the new slang and figure out how, you know, holographic cell phones work or whatever it is, but you're not going to be connected to that time mm -hmm. and you're not going to get it, mm -hmm. you know? So it's a very difficult thing, I think, to live your life. It detaches you in a way you're already detached from humanity. Mm -hmm. And then now you're detached really even further because you just can't understand the zeitgeist. Well, I agree with you. And I think that that happens to people over just a regular lifespan, just over a lifespan sure. of 80 years. Sure. An 80 year old is not going to be on generally, right? There are always exceptions. Not going to be, you know, jamming to TikTok and checking out the videos and making memes and shit, whatever the fuck they do these they days. They may right? be, they may do those things, but they don't have an intrinsic understanding. Right. It's not a part of of who they are. It's something that they can learn to be, but yeah. kids. So, so there is something then what you're saying to generational theory that, A that there's bit, something yes. that happens when, you know, to your cohort, you, the, the people that you were raised with, you resonate with those people. Sure. You resonate with that. Because you have shared experience, right? right? Mm -hmm. You shared a culture because it's really a cultural displacement. My mm -hmm. culture in general is the eighties. Mm -hmm. Not that I wasn't around in the 90s and I was paying attention or, you know, even the 2000s, whatever, but really my touchstones are in the 80s. Mm -hmm. The jokes I make are often rooted in 80s uh, popular culture. Sometimes, unfortunately. Yes, well. <laughs> but I think that is a problem. I think it makes it hard to live your life if you just don't understand the world around you. And and the further in time you go, the less you're going to understand it. The more, I mean, think how much the world changed even just 80 years, mm -hmm. forget 100 years, even just 80 years, it's almost a completely different world. Mm -hmm. And you can really sympathize, I think, with older people who are like, can't set, you know, we used to joke, you can't set the time on the VCR. Mm -hmm. Well, guess what? When they grew up, you didn't set the time on anything. <laughs> there weren't clocks, yeah. everyone. They're like, they're like, they're like, I have a sundial out in the front yard. <laughs> you don't have to set that. But, you know, it's just, you just, you didn't grow up steeped in that culture. You could learn it, but you're never really going to get it. Anne Rice grapples with that a, a, a little bit mm -hmm. in Interview with a Vampire Absolutely. With, with Armand. Yes. Armand says to Louis, he makes that point. You, you, will, you will help me be attached. So, right. so what he's saying is that you have to find 
another person, a person right. who's younger, in this case, a younger vampire, yeah. who is more attached to the modern day. Yeah, to be your spirit to be, guide. To be the one yeah. who will help you understand it and lead you through right. it. You can kind of view things through their eyes. Yeah. And that helps you keep connected. And here's the thing that I think would be the most exhausting about it. You would see the same bad things repeat yeah. themselves over and over right. and over again, depending on when, you know, how old you are, yeah. you would see the, the politicians make the same mistakes. Right. You would see, you know, people decide they're going to go to war over stupid fucking things yep. and nothing, nothing really ever changes yeah. except for things become just the technology, technology changes, changes and the language and, changes, yeah. but the problems really repeat themselves. They really do. Yeah. As much as things try to change for the better, and that's that's the patriarchal equilibrium, right? Whether or not it's patriarchy or whatever it right, is, right, right. there is an equilibrium. There's a balance that happens. So even if things seem to progress and move forward, something comes along to make still it balance out, and it balances yeah. out always in favor of, you know. Yes. The filthy rich. That's exactly right. <laughs> Here's one of mine, and yeah. that is... You can, a number of people shared this same thought on Twitter. You can't have a child to fix a bad relationship. Correct. In fact, that will almost always put pressure on the relationship so that existing fissures will widen mm -hmm. and destroy you. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, people think that, okay, well, we're struggling as a couple. Let's just have a baby. Everybody loves babies. That'll bring us together. Mm -hmm. Well, no, babies are stressful. Children are stressful. I mean, if in the best of situations. Yeah, even the baby, greatest and even kids. the greatest relationship. Look, the process of parenting requires a lot of energy, a lot of sacrifice of your own needs for theirs. Um, and then you're trying to do this with another person who also has needs, wants, and desires. It's not easy. Now, people do it, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you can do it. But if the relationship isn't already solid, adding a child to it is just a recipe for disaster, as we see. As we see. So in the film, what happens is Lestat, who is very attached to Louis, yeah. and in the right. in the movie, they have Louis grieving the loss of a wife and child. And he, right. he runs into Lestat, and Lestat changes him into a vampire. Well, Lestat's in love with him yes. and wants him as his companion. Which he's determined by stalking him for several months. Right. So yeah. Lestat decides he's going to he's going to turn Louis, which is what he does. After a while, Louis is just kind of fed up with the whole thing and Lestat feels him slipping away. Yes. This is how it goes in the in the film. So he goes off, he goes running off, he's going to leave Lestat, he goes running off and he finds Claudia the young girl yes. and he feeds on her and yes. he thinks that he kills her. But he doesn't. Yeah. And Lestat goes and finds her and after in in a number of ways then brings brings Claudia back to the house and turns her into a vampire. Correct. So Lestat makes the decision, I will keep you by giving you this child who now you will be able to care for and treat as a as as a ba as your child and um, of course being Anne Rice, it doesn't just stay there. She, the, Claudia kind of and Louis fall in love a little bit. Yeah, because Anne loves inappropriate <laughs> sexual relationships. <laughs> yes, she does. Claudia is being brought in to serve as a stopgap or a Band-Aid yeah. to fix this kind of struggling relationship. Correct. And it goes horribly, horribly wrong. Correct, which leads to my next life lesson. Okay. No honor among thieves. Ooh. 
right? If you are in with thieves, you can't be shocked when they steal from you. Mm -hmm. If you are in a relationship with two other murderers, you can't be surprised when they want to murder, Mm -hmm. possibly you. Mm -hmm. And because that's how vampires solve their problems for the most part. Mm -hmm. They don't negotiate. They kill. Because they have that, that's their greatest tool at their command is their All right, ability give to you, kill. Give the analogy. <laughs> if, you, if, you, if your only tool is a hammer, all problems tend to look like nails. And then for, and for vampires, that's, they're like, oh, I'm really having a problem. Have you thought of killing him? Ah, that's a good one. Thank you. <laughs> and you kill him and your problem's sort of solved. <laughs> so, you know, you can't really be super shocked when you're hanging out with murderous monsters, they might turn that murderous intent on you. Right. So what does that say? Okay, so let's say it's not murder. Let's say it's not quite so far. Right. But how do you distill that more to a real life well, lesson? Well, you could sort say of something like who like, your friends are. Yeah. You know, like or you could say we started our relationship by cheating on our spouses. Spouses. You can't, you can't, be, can't surprised be super shocked if, if I'm cheating if on you. you. Get, if you eventually get cheated on. Yeah. Or you cheat. If you hang out with people of questionable virtue, don't be surprised when they show that question that that lack of virtue. Right. You know, so. Um, or don't be surprised if people around you think that you think are like you. like of them. Course. Right. Yeah. Because I mean, like you're in a family where the other two people are vicious killers. We think you might be a vicious killer. Right. <laughs> or at least you're OK with vi- hanging out with vicious killers. You tolerate vicious killing in your uh, in your companions. Yes. So that says something about you. Yeah. So that's it. No honor among thieves. Agreed. Okay, so here was somebody. This is on Twitter. The Dark Gift, at The Dark Gift 6. I like to do it. I enjoy it. Is enough reason to do almost anything. Well, Lestat would certainly agree with that. (laughs) There is no doubt. Did Lestat actually post on our Twitter? (laughs) That's the, basically the philosophy of hedonism, Mm -hmm. right? Do it if it feels good, man, which is also a very popular thing to say in the 60s and 70s. Late 60s, yeah, for sure. Um, And I mean, I don't know if that's a great life lesson to take, but that is certainly, I mean, there are certainly people who believe that that is the guiding principle, right? Just seek pleasure. Avoid pain. Uh, if I look back historically at times of that are would be considered a, a great, greatly hedonistic times, so right. the nineteen twenties and sure ancient Rome, ancient Rome, parts of it, not yeah. all of it, but parts 60s, of it, sixties, uh, late sixties, eighties. Um, <laughs> but those times, they often precede the hangover. The hangover. I think yeah. that there's often a letdown after those times. Well, but and what that just le- may be then the question is what leads up to it? What yeah. what leads you into a period where you where things get very hedonistic? Yeah. A, a lack of strife? That doesn't track for the 20s because that was after the no, first I think, world war. In fact, so I is think it, I think it's a kind of a letting loose after a period of strife, right? Uh-huh. You know, after a great war, you know, I think after an economic downturn and when things start to get better, people are like, yeah, let's party, right? I don't know if that's perfect as a guiding principle, although many people certainly follow that. I think it's easy, you tire easily uh-huh. of it and it lacks 
um, complexity and it yeah. reminds me of Gatsby and where you have that decaying sign yeah, of the uh, with the glasses. Yeah. It's it's a little bit there's a, there's rot yeah. underneath that, yeah. and I think that it it's like too much sugar. And I think it lacks poignancy, mm-hmm. right? Because you know sadness and struggle can yield meaning, but maybe that's snobbish too, right? I'm like, oh, there has to be higher meaning and there has to be struggle. What's what's another one? Christina, mm-hmm. come and knock on our door. <laughs> We've been waiting for you. Three's company? Well, I would say that the lesson is that in general, vampires or people are not going to be Chrissy, Janet, and Jack. Mm-hmm. Two's company. Mm-hmm. Three's a crowd. Mm. It is difficult to negotiate a relationship equally between three people. Mm-hmm. One of them has to be treated in, or not has to be, but tends to be treated in a different way. So for example, with Claudia and Louis and Lestat, Claudia is treated as a child, even after she insists that that's not how she wants to be treated. She wants to be treated equally as a vampire. But a three-legged stool like that is trickier to balance because it's very easy for jealousy to happen and the dynamic is just inherently, I think, unbalanced. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a tricky thing to n- navigate. Now, if one of those three people is a child, right, and the other two are devoted to caring for that child, that makes that can work better. But if there's like three people trying to be in an equal relationship, people who are fans of polyamory, you know, disagree that, would, that, would they absolutely would disagree, disagree yeah. with you. I think they're probably wrong but that's not really my call to make right if it works for you great but in general Mm -hmm. i would say there will be some inherent lack of balance there and it that's things start to wobble i couldn't divide my attention between two or more other people i i I couldn't it's it's tough enough to just do one-on-one like you can have other friends but they can't be at exactly the same no. level. Or if you do have friends, if there's three of you, that's more problematic than, say, if there was four. I believe that there are people who can make polyamory work. Again, it's not something that I could do. I can't understand it. But people that are involved in those kinds sure. of relationships seem to be happy and they really believe in it. And But look, this is a general rule, right? It's There are always going to be exceptions. Right. I think for the most part, that's a difficult thing to pull off. And maybe only because society has really geared us towards a yeah. different structure. You would right? think that it would be an ease or a, a benefit in some way. So sort of like if you had, a, if like the sister wives system in, in yeah. LDS, right? It theoretically sounds like it would be terrific because you've got somebody there that is a built-in bestie yeah. and you guys go and you do things and you have someone who can look after your kids or help you out. There's somebody there to right. help you. And in reality... Yeah, oh, my sweet summer child. <laughs> right. In, in reality, you know... But wouldn't you get jealous? Like if That's it's so-and-so's yeah. night and you're like, well, well on the other hand, maybe. just if it's so-and-so's night, but hey, so-and-so got three nights this week and I only got one, mm-hmm. right? Or their child seems to be favored over mine. Right. Or they're the first wife and I'm just, you know, number two or three. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not even, even just. Or 20 in the case of yeah, Warren Jeff. Well, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Let's look at one that's kind of funny, and yes. but I think we can get a real life lesson out of this. This is Sojo. She's at Sojo eighty three. 
And she, 83, greatest year of the 80s, <laughs> unquestionably. 83, yeah, it is a pretty good year. It's a greatest so year I, of the I'm 80s. I'm going to guess that 83 was the year she was born. Sorry you didn't get to really experience 1983. I mean, 83 <laughs> was a great year. You, <laughs> it really was. Sorry you were just crawling around and stuff, but <laughs> oh, it was awesome. Great music. Great oh, music. God. I graduated high school. Problematically, everybody was smoking everywhere. Well, I mean, look, we have to we can edit that out of the history so <laughs> we don't have to think about that uh the the golden years okay she says do not ever be afraid to rock the perfect blowout while serving vengeance and then she shared a picture yes, of brad yeah. pitt looking yeah. like you know with his long hair and he's in his beautiful uh brocade, brocade dress <laughs> ruffles and ruffled sleeves. it's yeah. very beautiful yes it's a very very new romantic look 100%. If you are going to go and you're do gonna something, you're going to do it. Why not do it with style? You better style? dress for the occasion. Absolutely. Yes, dress for the job that you want, not yeah. the job that you have. Right. All of that, that's all kind of what, tied in. And I know. Was the job Louis wanted a, a baronet? Or well, something? Louis wanted to get revenge for Claudius. He's yeah. avenging Claudia's death yeah. when he goes in and he takes yeah. out the, the coven at the theater. Yep. Aesthetics matter. Mm hmm. And I think, I think mm. that's a legitimate. Is legitim that fair, though? Should, yeah. it, should they? Well, I guess. they do. Yeah. Like you're in a restaurant, isn't the atmosphere important? Mm -hmm. Isn't the decor important, right? All that stuff affects humans. Mm -hmm. We like aesthetically pleasing thing, right? It matters how things look, well, sound, feel, smell, whatever. We have eyes for, you know, we, 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 and, and, you know, people who are able-bodied and can, and see and have their vision, right? Mm -hmm. There's a, in my industry, in what I do for a living, I work in the produce industry. Ah, yeah, that's what it is. So when we're selling produce to retailers, one of the things that the retailers QC checks when our, the fruit, Quality fruit, control. The fruit arrives, they look into it to see what, does it have any really obvious physical right. issues? And we know, and we know because we've been told, you know, in the last few years that really ugly fruit tastes the same as regular fruit. Uh -huh. But when you're in a grocery store, are you going to buy the perfectly round orange with that bright orange color? Or are you going to go like, oh, I don't know, that one that's a little green and kind of lumpy. I'll get that one. Right? No, you want the one that <laughs> right. looks beautiful. You want the one that looks beautiful. Obviously, people are having more of a social conscience and they are saying, and there are some, there are, and it's, it's, very, it can be very specific to d demographics. Yeah. There are some demographics that really don't care. They'll yeah. buy whatever fruit, they'll buy what right. are called like number two grade fruits or, or vegetables. But those, I think for them to make that decision, there would have to be some other benefit like it's cheaper. It's less expensive expensive that's right uh, but it tastes just as good and yeah. i am here to tell you that it tastes just as good and that yeah. orange that you like that yeah. is so bright orange and might not even taste that great it doesn't it that orange is not ripening to be bright orange on the tree that orange yeah. is coming off the tree green and they're putting it into a room and they're gassing it so yeah, that like it gassing. takes yeah. the, so that it gets to a certain color you know when you buy your avocado if, if you buy one that's just right on it's breaking it's right on the edge of being ripe it's almost soft enough to eat yeah. whatever it's because that's been softened yeah. in in a room it's been right what you are buying with your eyes isn't really even <laughs> what it seems it yeah. is but it isn't right so sure. so i think that you're you're not wrong people do care about aesthetics there's we a reason why do. people are fanatically taking pictures of their food before they eat it now yeah right entire careers are built on on aesthetics i was sure. just on the phone today for for a work call talking to a social media influencer and she was talking 
about how she's going to have this retreat. At the retreat, they bring in videographers and it's going to be 10 different big social media influencers in the food space. It's going to be this beautifully curated with gorgeous place settings and flowers. And she sent me pictures of what it's looked like in the past, these retreats, and it's fantastic. Is it wrong that I'm assuming that that's an an insufferable room to be in? Well, they're very personable. This this woman was extremely nice. Some of them are. I, I, I... well, I mean, that would be a room full of interesting people. It may not be people that I'd love or yeah. want to hang out with, yeah. it, you know, but they certainly would be interesting and engaging because of their job to be engaging and interesting. Yeah, but of course, I'm more cynical about stuff like that, I think. But I'm like, look, Balenciaga is not a personality trait. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> so, Sojo, I agree with you. We probably took your point and made it made it a little a less little fun, bit, a little bit less fun than <laughs> we, it was. We squeezed the inf- the uh, actual. It's really, kind of what I do. I take yeah, things and you I just, make them so we, academically ex- we, obscure. We run them through the sausage maker. Yeah, it's true. Do you have one more? Problems tend to travel with you. Oh, that's a good one. So there are many times when things just aren't going well and people just have this instinct to make a change right Mm -hmm. i want to move i want a new job Mm -hmm. i want a new relationship and it turns out in kind of a you know wizard of oz sort of way the problem was inside you all along that's true (laughs) Not not as cheerful a lesson as you had a brain all along in general i think you're just either happy or not based on the content of your life and experience and not necessarily geography or not necessarily just who you're with. Now, yes, you can have a, you can improve a situation by leaving an abusive relationship, for example, Mm -hmm. but there are people who are having unrelated problems. Like, you know, I just am unhappy. I can't make money, whatever it is. And they think that changing their partner will fix that or getting a different partner will fix that. And I think that you'll find that your problems are more intrinsic than that Mm -hmm. rather than extrinsic, if that is a word. And I believe it is. Mm -hmm. Um, So when, you know, Louie wants to run away, right? That's a very, and or when Claudia wants to run away. Mm-hmm. My feeling is that your problems are with, you know, your lack of meaning in your life, your lack of identity. It's not because you're living in New Orleans. Now, you might have to leave, get out of town because they're hot on your trail, but moving to a different place isn't really solving those core problems. The saying is wherever you run, there you are. And I, this is my own experience. There are times in my life where things feel so heavy that you start to think, I, I, if I could just get out of yeah, here, if I could, if just, I could just get away, yeah. if I could just get away from here. And oftentimes, too, I think that I have, I had this. I don't, I haven't had it recently, but it used to be where I would, things would be going on, and I would just think, oh, if, I, if only I could go home. Yeah. And home to me was what? Like going back to my childhood, right? Like home, you know, just going back to my home. And by home, I meant a time before I had all this. Right. Before you had all these responsibilities and whatever. Yeah. Yeah. When Stu was dying, I was. You know, I was laying there and I, of course, was there. I was 100% there with him and I wanted to be there with him. Yeah. But there were times where I would be laying in bed at night. And I would think to myself, it's going to be so unbearable to be here yeah. when he's not. Right. 
I think I need to make I a need big to change. Just clean sweep. I, I yeah. need to get. I need to yeah. get out of here. Yeah. And I knew I couldn't because I had my kids. Sure. But I. Uh, but I. There was a big part of me that said, "I'm just going to move overseas." Yeah. It's I could a very do it. Natural I have a. Instinct. I have, I have yeah. a. I have a dual citizenship. Yeah. I can figure out a way to do this, and I'm going to move overseas. I'm going to move to England, right? Yeah. And. <clears throat> Uh, obviously, I did not. I didn't do that. I noticed that the urge was strong, and it's because, and you know, I mean, it's, I'm sure it's the same for many, many people. It just feels so heavy, and it wasn't yeah. that there was a really a problem with me. I wasn't. There have been other times where I was trying to flee my own right. bad choices, right. but this was just a situation where I. It would the the things that were happening were way out of my control, yeah. and I just didn't think I could stand the pain of being in that place, being reminded of it. When now he that, wasn't and there. that's a more re- legitimate, I think, motivation than just you know, if I could just you know move to New York or Hawaii or whatever, everything would be so much better. Right? No, well, that's, no, no. Your problems tend to travel with you. Well, and even in my case where it was yeah. no, you know, it wasn't bad decision-making that I was doing. Right. It was just a, a situation that was outside of my control. Right. But it was going to hurt me. Yeah. That grief was still going to be with it's me. It's going to come if, with uh, you. It doesn't yeah. matter if I was in, I, yeah. well, and here's a good example. The summer after Stu died, my oldest daughter, his his oldest daughter was studying abroad in, in uh, Sorrento and I took everybody to Italy. I took yeah. us all to Italy yeah. to visit her there. Yeah. And I look back on that now and I am happy that my kids had such a great trip because right. they all had such a great time on that trip and they sure. needed to have that trip. I don't look back on that trip and really remember anything yeah, remarkable about Italy because were, I was you were in deeply cloud. in grief. Right. Yeah. I was deeply grieving. And so I think that that is a hundred percent true. Yeah. And it is displayed in that movie very, very clearly. Sure. And, and in even rebound relationships. Yeah. I mean, Louis, Louis goes, goes off with Paris Armand and he goes off with Armand and guess what? Same problems. Same problems. In I that. mean, different guy, right? Mm-hmm. Possibly worse guy if you read further on, but a little murder goblin Armand. Well, you know, but he's kicking it with a guy who, in the book, yeah, looks like he's a fifteen or sixteen year old kid. Right. Well, that's again Anne Rice's problematic sexual relationships. <laughs> but I at mean, least, really at least when he was that. with Antonio Banderas, yes, you know, you can see that, right? Yeah. <laughs> Antonio. Antonio did a great job. He's another yeah. one that did a good job in oh, that yeah, film. Absolutely, yeah, he was really good yeah. in that movie. Okay, one more. Give me one more. All right. People are people. So why should it be? Exactly. You and I should get along so So awfully. awfully. (laughs) (laughs) No, what I mean by that is, and this is really, let's be honest. Anne Rice is not the greatest writer of all time. Her prose tended towards the purple. She eschewed editing. After a certain point. Which is really an ego problem. But the one thing she did was help us shift the focus from vampires just being monsters or vampires just being sex symbols Mm -hmm. to saying let's think about the vampire as a person while they may be exaggerated because their powers are greater right and they can again end problems by simply murdering somebody and then disappear into the night but people are people you know that's why fables work Mm -hmm. because they treat that you know even though we're now saying okay we're talking about talking animals 
but we can see them as people because they have all these problems, etc. So same with vampires. Now we can use them as a parable and talk about human life and interaction between people, even though they're removed from humanity. And I think that makes it easier to have those discussions because mm-hmm. it removes us a little bit and it gives us a little bit more objectivity. But people are people. Okay, they're going to have those problems. They're going to have relationship issues. You know, they're going to have depression and anxiety and joy and all the things that people have that it just because they have superpowers, it they didn't cure everything, mm-hmm. right? Didn't fix everything for them. Well, and in some cases, it exacerbates exactly. their issues because now you have the superpower and yeah. you, you don't see this so much in the film, but you do see it in the TV series. They made a choice, the showrunners, to make Louis a man of color. Yes. He has the issue of having to deal with racism. Lestat comes along in his white savior self (laughs) and turns him into a vampire and gives him these fantastic superpowers, this dark gift that comes with vampirism. So he can read minds in the the TV series and and he has obviously super strength and super speed and all of that. Sharpie teeth. And super pointy teeth. That does not cure the racism. You know, before he was he was up against it, he would have to unfortunately kowtow to the white patriarchy. Yes. And now he has the power. He could just kill them. Yes, which but you which he does he, de- he did one <laughs> a little bit. he do- he does it the one time. Yeah. Uh but generally he has to keep that yeah. in check. Think how much harder it is to know that you could do something yeah. about it. You could take them all out right. and then you have to hold yourself back. Yeah. Louis is exerting a lot of self-control. Yes. Uh, and one of Louis's major in the TV series, one of Louis's major uh, sort of personality points. Yeah. And the writer's room of AMC was talking about this on Twitter is his ability to withhold. And I think, and his withholding is a form of hurting his withholding hurts Lestat. Lestat wants more effusive love expressions. You know, like extravagant, be extravagant with me, Louis, but Louis punishes Lestat by withholding. And it's a, but it's a painful thing for Lestat. But Louis's ability to with to hold himself in con- yeah. in check, yeah, I think is also allows him to exist with this superpower and not just tear up the town. Correct. So, and I think that this applies to people who we tend to dehumanize a little bit because they're famous or rich, mm-hmm. right, or great looking. Mm-hmm. But they're still people. And I know it's very, and it's fine. In fact, it's funny sometimes to think of, you know, whatever, Tom Cruise going grocery shopping, right? And yes, do they remove themselves from some of those activities? They do. But they still have to, you know, go to the bathroom, Mm -hmm. you know, figure out where to throw their socks when they're getting into bed, whatever it is. Everybody has to deal with that being a person. Even though you're fabulously wealthy, you still have to deal with interpersonal relationships. And maybe not everybody does exactly what you want, even though you think maybe they should. Well, and I just think that being fabulously wealthy or fabulously famous makes yeah. that even harder. It's sure. got to be much harder. And especially like if you're a famous actor yeah. to have to because you because your job is to pretend that you're in love with someone else for eight hours a day or however right. many hours, 12 I mean, hours a God day. God knows I get tired of it. Oh my God. And then, <laughs> and then you come back home to your real life spouse right. or whatever. That's gotta be tough. 
And and you have that, you know, that the cliche, you know, they put their pants on one leg at a time. Although maybe Lestat mm-hmm. could like he's so fast he could set his pants up and jump up in the air, land in them. Yeah. I don't know. But I mean it's that same kind of idea that they still have to go through people type things. Mm-hmm. And that's really what the, I think that's really the revolutionary message of the immortal universe, which is let's look at them in terms of their peopleness. Their, well, their uh, you're saying, you're saying peopleness, but I would say humanity, but I guess it, in your mind, that's two different things. It but. is. Humanity is a biological thing, but possibly in the future, we'll have to expand our idea of what it is to be a person, right? Mm-hmm. Because right now, persons are just humans. Mm-hmm. Maybe dolphins or octopuses or something should be persons mm-hmm. as well, just different kinds of persons. Or if God, you know, who God knows, will discover alien life, they're mm-hmm. definitely not going to be human, but they could be very well be persons. Unless they're time-traveling humans. Right. Well, okay. <laughs> that was great, great contribution. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I'm just saying. Yeah. I'm just throwing it out there. But yeah, so people are people. So Mark, one of the things though that's interesting about what you're bringing up there about people are people is that this is a revolutionary thing that Anne Rice does for vampires, yes. which she makes them, she makes us think about them that Gives way. Gives them some complexity. So they are monsters. Yes. They are demonstrably monsters. They are killers they are yeah. that is that is what they do but they have this there, there is this but they can be charming they, they they have this human thing that they do and they can do good things yes. right so louis does do good things lestat maybe yeah well, well lestat does i mean he gets some pretty sweet concert tickets you know, so. <laughs> but, and, the, and the other thing that lestat does is when you read the vampire lestat you learn that okay well maybe louis didn't have it right right here's right. the redemption arc unreliable those narrator. those prostitutes that i killed that louis was wringing his hands over they yeah. were actually you know yeah they were of the devil it, well they <laughs> were doing bad things they right. were they were the men who went to call on them often yes. never were seen again yeah, right so you know there's game. so his 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 excuse is i actually really just kill bad people yeah. most yeah. of the time sometimes not but most of the time i'm killing bad people all right so so people are complex they're not monolithic they are right? not right so what we are going to do in our patreon this week we're going to continue on this conversation so we invite you to join us there. We are at www.patreon.com forward slash Gen X Temporaneous. And we're going to talk about a real life application of where someone who probably not a great person yeah. has done something that actually is good. It has yeah. exposed something that needed exposing. Right. And the response to that exposure and how people are trying to spin that and say, well, their badness. Right negates the good that they've done all right so thank you very much mark for having this conversation with me we invite you to join us on our patreon if you want to hear more about it and let's tell about social media we have a twitter we have many twitters (laughs) i'm at christina gen x probably best if you just follow us on at christina gen x or at mark eats peach we also have a, a Gen X temporaneous which is at extemporaneous2 on twitter and i guess i'm just gonna say bye Peace out, Cub Scouts.